This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Mintz. Bail is refused. You're out of order! If it pleases the court. To adopt this affirmation, please say the words, I do. I do. Nothing further from this case. Given the serious nature of this offence, this case is dismissed. Welcome to The Wigs, the only podcast featuring practising barristers talking shop. I am your host, Jim Minns. On the show right now, The Wigs discuss the recent gay rights decision in the US Supreme Court in Bostock versus Clayton County, followed by Emmanuel presenting an historical essay on William Marquette, a fascinating and important but little-known figure in Australian legal history. And lastly, in relation to the Bostock case, stick around for an interview with Associate Professor Wayne Morgan, a leading expert on sexuality and the law. Hello, how do you do? Emmanuel Kukasharian. Good evening. Good evening to you. Felicity Graham. Jim, good evening. Good evening to you. The Deputy Mayor of Dubbo, Mr. G'day, Stephen mates. Lawrence. G'day, how are you? Good, how are you? So good that you managed to make every wig session so far. Mate, I try and actually coordinate it with uh, court commitments in Sydney or other commitments. Is that what it is? So it's not too much of a burden on me. But yeah, I do go the extra mile, so thank you. You do? Well, I think we accommodate you. There's no postcode justice here. It's true. (laughs) I'm glad that there is no postcode justice being inflicted by one of the arch opponents of postcode justice, being yourself. I, I specifically make, you know, dates that are... Are suitable to your calendar. And that's because you've lived out west, mate. It is. Like. I do. We all have. We all do, so Tonight was a particularly inconvenient night for me, so, you know. I you're could welcome. be doing all my fun things. Exactly. There you go. That was tonight. <laughs> <laughs> it was tonight, Steve. Thank you very much. That unending list of fun things that you have to do. Yeah, Manny's a busy guy. All right, without further ado, we're going to jump straight into it because we've got a lot to talk about as per usual. Uh, Stephen Lawrence is taking the reins. Because my paper's in the way. Uh, Stephen's going to be talking about, if I'm not wrong, Steve, uh, a brand new decision of the United States Supreme Court. So we're going across the Pacific for, I guess, the first time, really, uh, on the Wigs. Wigs International. There we go. Uh, where they don't actually wear horse hair over there. We've been international before. We've had a little sure jaunt. Sure about the prerogative yeah. powers of the Crown in the UK. Oh, yeah, that's Talks right. about Julian yeah, Assange. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But we haven't... Aussie. Well, yeah. We didn't exactly go to the US. He's been neglected by our government. Anyway, different topic. Sorry, Jim. Go That's on. fine. That's fine. Bostock v. Clayton County, Georgia. Is that correct? Correct. Uh, in which a Trump-appointed judge broke ranks and wrote a pro-gay rights decision. Let's hear all about it. This is a recent recent turn of events. Yep. Yeah, so Bostock and Clayton County was delivered on the 15th of June, 2020. 2020 WL 31466. So it was a case that concerned an issue that has been winding its way through the American court system for years. Mm. The issue, in short, is whether a particular provision of the Civil Rights Act 1964, which prohibits employment-related discrimination on the grounds of race, colour, religion, sex or national origin extends to discrimination or extends to prohibit discrimination on the grounds of sexuality or sexual orientation. So the question, in short, was whether the words of a statute which says it is unlawful for an employer to fail or refuse to hire or to discharge any individual or otherwise to discriminate against any individual because of such individuals' race, colour, religion, sex or national origin extends to sexuality um, or gender identity because of the use of the word sex. Yeah, can I just say, the entire uh, story was documented on an episode of This American Life. It was. I've actually listened to it. It's a great episode. It's incredible. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. It's not number one. Yeah. No, uh, no, not for five. Is that days. one of our no. competitors? Uh, did I just it's American? Well, no. Can we cut that from our? Yes, please, please. <laughs> so the facts of this case are really confronting. I think will be really confronting for a lot of Australian listeners because we, for some time now, have had in our federal discrimination legislation uh, protection against employment discrimination on the grounds of sexuality. 
it wasn't in the federal statute for a long time. I think it was put in under the Rudd government, but it's been a feature of most state anti-discrimination regimes. Not so in the United States. Mm. They've had the Civil Rights Act that prohibits such discrimination on the grounds of sex, but not sexuality or gender orientation, uh, gender identity, I should say. So the case, um, or the cases that came before the Supreme Court were three. The case is known as Bostock, because that was the first case on the docket, I think, but they're actually three. And the summary, um, which I think will convey the confronting nature of the facts, says in each of these cases, an employer allegedly fired a long-time employee simply for being homosexual or transgender. Uh, Clayton County, Georgia, filed Gerald Bostock for conduct unbecoming a county employee shortly after he began participating in a gay recreational softball league. Uh, Altitude Express filed Donald Zada days after he mentioned being gay. And RG and GR Harris Funeral Homes fired Amy Stevens, who presented as a male when she was hired after she informed her employer that she planned to live and work full-time as a woman. And that's the, that's the American life. Mm. Yeah. yeah, so that's the three cases that yeah. found their way to the Supreme Court. Mm. People um, fired in circumstances that even the minority judges obviously or said was outrageous yeah. um, and disrespecting um, of those people. The uh, interesting thing about, um, or one of the interesting things about this finding of the Supreme Court that sex discrimination includes sexuality discrimination and gender identity discrimination is that Neil Gorsuch wrote the majority decision. Okay. So the US uh, Supreme Court is basically split down the middle with four progressive judges, five conservative, but one who swings basically, the Chief Justice Roberts. So normally in these sort of cases, people look to the Chief Justice to see whether he is going to swing and support the progressive judges. But in fact, in this case, it was Neil Gorsuch who swung mm. um, and supported the progressive judges. Um, and what did Chief Justice Roberts? He um, he also supported the majority decision, uh, but he didn't he didn't write it. Ah, okay. It was written by Gorsuch. Um, or was it written by him, or just delivered by him? Uh, I think written by him, and then the others join. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, Justice Gorsuch delivered the opinion of the court. Um, Oh, okay, yeah, in which Roberts, Ginsburg, Breyer, Sotomayor and Kagan joined. Mm. Mm. Yeah, so look, Gorsuch's decision is well worth a read. It's crisp, it's succinct, but it's also, I think, quite beautifully written in parts. Um, It was common ground, I think, in argument and between the parties that those who passed the Civil Rights Act, um, uh, the legislators, wouldn't have expected the result. Um, And that became an issue in terms of the statutory interpretation arguments that played out before the court. And the minority judges, uh, certainly Justice Alito, thought that was a key factor, what was the intention of the legislators. Mm. Um, And the various judgments play out this argument about uh, the judicial legacy of Justice Scalia um, and textualism, which is his signature sort of style um, or type of statutory interpretation and there's a competition in a sense between Alito and uh, Gorsuch as to who is the true uh, proponent of textualism. Okay, what's textualism? It was basically a mode of judicial um, analysis that was led by Scalia, Mm -hmm. Antonin Scalia, um, who died and Gorsuch actually replaced his place on the court. That basically in simple terms says that you primarily or exclusively in some circumstances look to the text and you applying this mode of analysis would more often disregard um, extra textual considerations. Yes, such as extrinsic in Australia equivalent, right? Yeah, I mean, we tend to sort of blend all of these theories a bit. I mean, theoretically, they're not meant to, but in practice, recourse is had Mm. to secondary material here more often than not, even though if it's clear on its face, you're meant to just go with what the legislation says. And isn't that one of the things that Gorsuch said was that there's nothing unclear about the text, so we don't need to go to extraneous material. You only go there if there's some ambiguity or some uncertainty about the language of the text and what it means. Mm -hmm. But the language omits sexual 
Is that right? Or? It does, and that was one of the issues that played out because the, the minority uh, basically said, look, considering legislative intent and considering, indeed, how they say what any person in America at the time would have thought, sexual orientation discrimination and gender identity discrimination is different to sex discrimination. Uh, but Gorsuch's um, answer to that, um, in short, was to pose an argument um, of logic. And um, what he basically said uh, was this. Um, he provided this example in support of uh, the reasoning that uh, discrimination on the grounds of uh, the sexuality or gender identity of a person is in truth also sex discrimination. He said, consider, for example, an employer with two employees, both of whom are attracted to men. The two individuals are, to the employer's mind, materially identical in all respects, except that one is a man and the other is a woman. If the employer fires the male employee for no reason other than the fact he's attracted to men, the employer discriminates against him for traits or actions it tolerates in a female colleague. Uh, put differently, the employer intentionally singles out an employee to fire based in part on the employee's sex and the affected employee's sex is a but-for cause of his discharge. I don't know. To my mind, that seems pretty logical. Mm. Um, they pose another... I like sen- the other example that he gives at the party. Yeah, Do so the like other scenario yeah. is a work office party where two employees attend with their wives. One employee is fired as a consequence of doing so and they are fired because they are a woman rather than a man. So they have attended with their wife, therefore revealing that they um, are homosexual in a same-sex relationship and they're fired because of it. Yeah, I I love the way the American judges do law, particularly the Supreme Court, but they're just so crisp, but also they really, they do not shy away from facing what would otherwise be considered the politics of the issue. And in this case, from a conservative justice, dismissing the political aspect of it and saying we're just going to rely on the um, text. Mm, mm. Which is what would have been practised... I'm assuming back in the Scalia days. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the dissenting position that somehow what they were saying, going back to the intention of the legislature, gave rise to a textualist interpretation is just ridiculous. Mm. I, I, I don't... Yeah, it was expected. Well, yeah, yeah because the, the, the court often divides upon political lines right. and, and traditional... And these were... Republican appointee, well, especially Neil Gorsuch was mm. a Republican, so th- therefore there was an assumption. Is there any um, reference to the change of gender? Because one of the cases that was brought before it is is the gender transition. Is there a scenario presenting <coughs> sort of hypothesis yeah. there? Yeah, there is. And I'll just read you precisely what the majority say about the gender identity. Uh, by discriminating against homosexuals, the employer intentionally penalises men for being attracted to men and women for being attracted to women. By discriminating against transgender persons, the employer unavoidably discriminates against persons with one sex identified at birth and another today. Any way you slice it, the employer intentionally refuses to hire applicants in part because of the affected individual's sex, even if it never learns any applicant's sex. I also love how they're just quite openly uh, contemptuous of the argument. Well, Mm. each other, but also the argument on the other side. So they talk about the employers having to scramble to justify their argument and ultimately, because they can't rely on the text, they're forced to abandon it and precedent and appeal to assumptions and policy and then say most pointedly they contend that few in 1964 would have expected Title VII to apply to discrimination against homosexual and transgender persons. But then Gorsuch also um, says, well, actually, is that really the case? Because certainly some people 
foresaw that it would apply to this kind of situation because there were cases brought not long after the Civil Rights Act was introduced that engaged this question on that basis Mm. and, Mm. and academics were writing about it as well. So really, was it that so unforeseen? Mm. And um, there's this passage where Gorsuch says, why isn't that enough to demonstrate that today's result isn't totally unexpected? How many people have to foresee the application for it to qualify as expected? Do we look only at the moment the statute was enacted or do we allow some time for the implications of a new new statute to be worked out? Should we consider the expectations of those who had no reason to give a particular application any thought or only those with reason to think about the question? How do we account for those who change their minds over time after learning new facts or hearing a new argument? How specifically or generally should we frame the application issue? None of these questions have obvious answers and the employers don't propose any. Mm. That's interesting because I think that would like presuppose that most people would accept, yes, we are being discriminatory and, you know, rather than pleading ignorance on the fact, you know, like saying we recognise that this is a discriminatory practice but we want to engage in it anyway because we want to discriminate. Mm. And this is a, a judgment saying, well, I'm sorry, discrimination is uniform and we've got to draw a line through it. I mean, it's interesting to my mind that the majority decision is the more conservative one in many respects. Well, in the sense, mean? it's more conservative both in the legal sense, in that it's going off the strict textual analysis, and it's also conservative in the sense that the court said homosexual and transgender status are inextricably bound up with sex. And that's a position that these days, I think, that certainly the more progressive view is that sex is not determinative of gender and not determinative of homosexuality and transgender status. And so by saying, in effect, that it doesn't matter what sex you are, in a kind right, of right. odd way, yeah, 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 yeah. the dissenting judgments were far more... Pre- I mean, obviously their outcome wasn't progressive, but they were relying on a more progressive understanding of homosexuality and transgenderism than, than the But the, majority logic, was. the logic just cuts through. Logic cuts through. Logic cuts yeah. Through. One of the or if you're a biological determinist. But, but even, even there, the logic cuts through and says, no, no, d- discrimination is the factor. Nothing else is relevant. So there's a good passage uh, that sums up, I think, the cut-through logic of it. And... Um, it reads as this the weighty implications of the employer's argument from expectations and that's talking about community expectations at the time that the law was passed also reveal why they cannot hide behind the no elephants in mouse holes canon I love this passage that canon recognises that Congress does not alter the fundamental details of a regulatory scheme in vague terms or ancillary provisions and we have a similar rule here where you don't assume uh, that fundamental rights or principles are changed by ambiguous legislation but we don't have such a great name no, principle no of legality elephants in mouse holes canon um, but what Gorsuch said about that he goes through what he calls the starkly broad terms of the section points out that it has repeatedly produced unexpected applications at least in the view of those on the receiving end of them, and concludes um, in that particular passage saying, this elephant has never hidden in a mouse hole. It has been standing before us all along. Yes, I love that passage. It's fantastic. But it just raises that kind of point, which is that in the law, there's all of these arguments that haven't been made before, Mm. and the extent of the arguments really just, you know, depends on the creativity of counsel. Sure. And, you know, when people are making new, smart arguments, they're sometimes met with the response, well, surely this would have come up before if this was the law. Mm. But, you know, sometimes it takes decades for the correct interpretation of the law to be arrived at. That's really interesting. Mm. There were some good sledges, though, wasn't there? There is some brilliant sledges. In the the dissent. So particularly (laughs) in the minority, um, Alito, um, who was joined... Uh, by Thomas um, and Kavanaugh, the other Trump uh, appointee, wrote his own judgment where he didn't engage in as many wonderful uh, sledges. But, yeah, Alito calls the majority uh, a number of things. 
he says, a more brazen abuse of our authority to interpret statutes is hard to recall. Um, he says on page six, the arrogance of this argument is breathtaking. As I will show, there is not a shred of evidence for it. <laughs> so absolutely brutal. Um, says this is in respect of an argument that he uh, is considering. The court's argument is not only arrogant, it is wrong. Um, <laughs> we don't see many instances of judges writing in terms like this about their colleagues. No. We've seen some in the High Court. And in fact, Justice Hayden was pretty well known for some brutal sledges. Um, oh, yeah. Justice Kirby... But are they, now gonna be like, are they now going to be um, struck from the record? <laughs> uh, Justice Hayden. Yeah. Yeah, look, I think we'll probably see, like we did with Justice Howie, a tendency for judges to cite Justice Hayden less <laughs> in light of recent events. Really? Um, yeah, so look, words like uh, preposterous, right. arrogant, yeah. and so forth. We'll tell that uh, to the uh, majority ruling of the Supreme Court, mm-hmm. you doofus. Hey, Jim, the other ironic thing about this statutory provision which concerns discrimination or seeking to prohibit discrimination on the grounds of sex is that it uses gendered language in its own text. So it says it shall be an unlawful employment practice for an employer to fail or refuse to hire or to discharge any individual or otherwise to discriminate against in any individual with respect to his compensation, terms, conditions or privileges of employment because of such individual's sex, etc. Mm. And it, the Civil Rights Act was passed in 1964 at a time presumably when it was a statutory convention to write provisions mm-hmm. in a gendered way mm-hmm. on yep. the assumption that they would be interpreted to mean both yeah. he and she. Yeah. Uh, Gosh, that's But weird. it struck me as quite ironic. Yeah. The, the very text of the statute um, contains that. So funny. That type of language. Yeah. That's an excellent point, Mr Graham. You it- say that to rile me up. Mr. Lawrence, about having been called Mr. Graham in court She's and been called Mr. Graham in court. being addressed as Mr. Graham in formal correspondence as a barrister. But I mean, when you guys are in Rome, so choice not to grow her hair. This is outrageous. Are I think that is outrageous. To, aren't you meant to? Because you've got long hair. I have long hair. That's right. <laughs> but hang on, when you're in garb, if it's the correct term, <clears throat> don't you all just look alike? Oh, come on. <laughs> yeah, and so why, why, but, but then why presume Mr. and not Ms. or Mrs.? Oh, that's a... That's because... A, profession's pretty male-dominated. Exactly. Uh, so there's a sort oh, yeah, of patriarchal assumption that's at play, I think. But Mr. Lawrence knows that this is a sore point of mine and and seems to think that there's there's nothing going on, nothing to see here. I don't think it's a high point of the sort of sexism argument. I defy you to appear in a dress, Stephen. But I appear in a dress all the time. No, under Isn't your the robes. robes? Oh, right. No, okay. no, a dress or a skirt. I can do that. Hey, I have a question for you, though, Stephen, about yeah. this, about the potential implications. This United States Supreme Court decision, which relates to um, a piece of legislation that talks about discrimination because of sex has confirmed that that includes sexual orientation, gender identity. There are places in the world, I'm thinking particularly here, places in the Pacific, where there are constitutional guarantees in relation to not being discriminated against on the grounds of sex. Mm. But in those same places where homosexuality, for example, is criminalised. So... What do you see as um, the potential ramifications of this case um, in places like that? Mm. It will certainly provide an argument uh, for legislative invalidity in countries where, as you say, there's a constitutional guarantee to be free of sex discrimination that is capable of invalidating legislation. Yet on the statute book, there are anti-sodomy statutes or other criminal offences that criminalise 
sexual relations between people of the same sex. Mm. Um, yeah, there's certainly countries in our region, PNG and Solomon Islands. Solomon Islands, yes. As two. But there are others, and certainly in Africa there are such countries. Um, a country like the Solomon Islands has a Bill of Rights in their constitution largely modelled um, on the European mm. uh, human rights Now, Nauru framework. as well, I think, would fall Nauru into that. Nauru decriminalised homosexuality about five Actually, years ago. Actually, they did. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure exactly why, but it was reported that that was to do with Australian pressure because Australia knew that their case for detaining refugees on Nauru mm, was more mm, difficult mm. in certain international uh, forums, perhaps if uh, gay detainees were facing uh, the criminal law in that way. So, yeah, those jurisdictions with that particular human rights protection and anti-sodomy statutes or similar will be able or there will be lawyers able to make those arguments. It's interesting, in Solomon Islands, um, it used to only be an offence for sexual relations to happen between men and a person challenged that... um, in the context of uh, being prosecuted for a particular sexual offence. They won um, in the Court of Appeal there and the section was uh, was declared unconstitutional on the basis that it only applied to men <clears throat> and the Court of Appeal was satisfied that that was sex discrimination. So not the mere fact of the existence of the statute, but the fact that it only applied to men. Mm. The Solomon Islands Parliament, I don't know if they actually struck the law down or they read out certain words in it. I think they read out certain words in it. But then the Parliament responded and created new criminal offences applying to men and women. Mm. Ah, and so, lesbians have been prosecuted in Solomon yeah, Islands, haven't they? Yeah, they certainly have. When I was there, there were two young women, adults, who were reported um, reported by their families. They were arrested. Wow. They were taken to court. They appeared before an Australian magistrate, Jane Hamilton-White, sometimes known as Jane Quilchy, and they received a sentence uh, for that. Of uh, imprisonment? Conduct. I think from memory it was a suspended sentence. Mm. Um, they didn't... They'd certainly been arrested and taken to court from memory. Mm. Um, but, yeah, pretty harsh penalty. It's not the norm for those matters to be prosecuted in places like the Solomons, but they can, even if not enforced, become a way of police blackmailing. They can be a thing that affects relations between people in all sorts of different ways, mm. that stigma and the stigma of the criminal law. So, yeah, hopefully... I mean, those countries will make their own decisions. Their courts won't blindly follow... American authority, but I think the logic, the clear logic in this authority will make it a pretty powerful weapon in lawyers' armoury in places that have those unfortunate laws. That's so good. Can I just say, it's so lovely to see the beauty of the common law where a judge who everyone expected to do a particular thing, appointed by conservatives for conservative reasons comes out and, and leads a wide-ranging decision that's going to have great effects, I imagine, all over America and perhaps all over the world. And it's really evidence of how good the common law is and how good this idea of having judges decide the issues in front of them on the law can really lead to good outcomes mm-hmm. in a way that few other systems can, particularly in 2020 where everything seems to be completely corrupted. You've got an intellectually honest conservative making what is ultimately a very progressive judgment. Mm. And it just goes to show how you can't pick cases on the basis of who appointed people because uh, Bill Dean in Australia was appointed by the Libs yep. and ended up one of the most progressive High Court judges. So you just can't predict based on party you know, affiliations in that sense. And you shouldn't be put off from putting the argument. 100%. You shouldn't back down or think, oh, we'll never win this case, so no point running it. Mm. We'll continue the discussion of the Bostock case in a moment with an interview with Associate Professor Wayne Morgan. But first, here's Emmanuel with the story of Willie Marquette. Willie Marquette, barrister at law, effective advocate against racial discrimination, is alas a little known figure in Australian legal history. 
the Whigs think that his story should be known far and wide. William was born in 1876 in Wangaratta, one of eight children, and he signed on to the bar roll at 1904. The papers at the time recorded him as being the first Chinese Australian to do so. One described him as a, quote, full-blooded, clever young Chinese. He was the son of Chinese migrants, his father a shopkeeper and a tobacco farmer. Photographs of the young William at the outset of his legal career depict a handsome young man with a look of resolve, unsmiling. William's story is inseparable from the Chinese experience of racism and discrimination in Australia. It also illuminates the true extent of his achievement as a trailblazer. Indeed, even in 2020, the bar is overwhelmingly white and indeed something of an elite enclave. The beginning of every bar course, there's the usual round of the room series of introductions. The faces and the accents reflect a profession overwhelmingly made up of the children of elite white professionals. The family names, the same schools, the same law firms are spoken of course after course. Same is true in the judiciary. There are many exceptions, of course, perhaps increasingly, but the reality is the profession is one that remains overwhelmingly white and in a profession that in part is responsible for the application of cultural knowledge, it's something that should change. The contemporary reality makes William R. Kitt's story even more remarkable. It was the experience of racial discrimination that drove him to study law. Historians recording that his father encouraged the teenage William to study law to help the Chinese community, which at that time faced racist laws and community discrimination, which to our modern sensibilities would seem nothing less than outrageous. Laws that William would later take on in the High Court. He used his considerable skill to attack the institutionalised racism of the day in multiple forums. He advocated politically to ban opium and repeal laws that discriminated against Chinese workers. One of his most notable legal accomplishments is the High Court decision of Ingham against Hai Lee. The matter concerned the then Factories and Shop Act 1905, which explicitly discriminated against Chinese people, going to lengths to define a factory or workroom as any place which employed at least, quote, four persons other than a Chinese or one Chinese. A Chinese man was charged under the act for ironing a shirt in a laundry between 9 and 10 p.m. on 31 May 1912. Ultimately, the matter was dismissed with costs. The outcome of this case shifted the way in which the law interacted with the Chinese community, marking a turning point and ending the dozens of prosecutions each year of Chinese persons in the laundry trade. Arquette is reported to have made several submissions, quote, in opposition to the Victorian government's attempt to introduce the Factories Act between 1904 and 1907, which aimed to drive the Chinese out of the cabinet and furniture-making trade. He was regarded as a brilliant cross-examiner with few equals at the bar. He shared chambers with future Prime Minister Robert Menzies, who described him as a, quote, phenomenon at the bar. And yet, William Arquette never reached the ranks of King's Council, nor was he appointed to the bench. Robert Menzies later wrote of him, William Arquette did not ever sit on a bench, though he would have been a very competent judge. A certain prejudice among clients having a Chinese barrister to an extent limited his practice, though instructing solicitors thought very well of him. An ABC story about him paints a picture of a man who faced discrimination and met it with humour and resilience. His great-granddaughter, Blossom Arquette, recalls the story of a white Australian man taunting him on a train on the way to court. He was asking him things like how the Chinaman liked his cup of tea and other such awful things. On arriving at court, William realised that the man who had teased him was in fact the lawyer he was up against. He won the case that day and then afterwards put on a stereotyped Chinese accent and said, how you like him, my cross-examination, says Blossom. The same story quotes his daughter recounting advice her father gave after she was picked on by other children with racist torts. He said, Do not ever be intimidated or pushed down or give in to people who would harass you or tease you and laugh at you. Defend yourself nobly, but always in a dignified fashion. At the turn of the century, public discourse about non-white immigrants was dominated by racist ideologies that translated into discriminatory laws. Indeed, those laws lasted well into the 70s and perhaps still do. 
Australia engaged in mass deportations of Pacific Islanders and banned Chinese people from taking citizenship. Discriminatory laws like those that William challenged were common and widespread. The White Australia policy was introduced with the support of all sides of politics and would remain well in place until well into the second half of the 20th century. Without the voice and actions of people like Archette, Chinese minorities would surely have been in a relatively more disempowered position and government would have been able to proceed with their agendas, their racist agendas, unchallenged. The Honourable Susan Kiefel, serving Chief Justice of the High Court of Australia, describes him as an individual who, quote, devoted his life to fighting against unfair discrimination. He's applauded for being an individual who wanted to, quote, help others and to act at all times righteously, with courage and with kindness. And can I say that's the sort of values that the bar ought exemplify and I think often does, but perhaps not often enough. William died in 1936 at the age of 60 with his wife and his children by his bedside. His daughter records his final words as unity is strength. It would take 80 years, 80 years, from his admission to the bar until the next Chinese-Australian barrister was admitted when William Lai became a barrister in 1988. Too long. The Whigs would like to acknowledge the following resources used for the William Arquette essay. The Law Institute of Victoria essay of 3rd of January 2018 titled William Arquette Legacy Recognised and the ABC Radio National Story of the 30th of August 2018 titled The Story of William Arquette, the First Chinese-Australian Barrister. Don't forget to stick around at the end of the episode for an extended interview about the Bostock case with Associate Professor Wayne Morgan. Ladies and gentlemen, we are back to finish the show off, and our the the greatest topic of uh, of the Wigs is the topic of fun things that the Wigs will Don't be getting up to. Uh, here we go, Mister Emmanuel Kirkusherian, your fun thing. I am going in about fifteen minutes to Harry's Hot Dogs. To hey, hot dog. That is with my fiance. So fun! Um, I'm really looking forward to it. Harry's hot dogs down at Woolamooloo. Down at Woolamooloo, I'm going to have a chili dog. Oh yeah, and possibly some sort of creaming soda. And that pea stuff. That no, I don't know. No, the pea stuff's for amateurs. Okay, yeah. <laughs> you're hardcore. Yeah, go Harry's. <laughs> Shout out to Harry's, yeah. who are not a sponsor of the show, but no, I don't know if we're looking, but if we are, Harry's, please drop us a line. Yeah. Felicity Graham. Wake up. Jim, what's your fun thing this week? <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I believe I threw it to you. <laughs> Good defensive, Harry. But no. there's, a, there's a procedure here, Felicity. I'm sorry. Okay, okay. Uh, well, I'm going to go for a bushwalk this weekend uh, right along right the up. Sydney foreshore and hopefully it'll be good weather and I can just take in... Hopefully there'll be no lockdown. Mm. Well, yes. From where to too. where? Well, I'm thinking Spit to Manly. Oh, that's so good. Yeah, I've yeah. done that walk before. It's beautiful. Oh, so yeah, good. nice one. Yeah, sounds awesome. Deputy Mayor, my fun thing is that my son is about to start to learn the piano. Oh yeah, and <laughs> you say that off the back of a very unfun. <laughs> oh so yeah, because, that's right. Um, uh, so I told <laughs> delivery piano mine, extraction. Yeah, yeah, so I told a friend of mine uh, that Damien wants to learn the piano. And her brother Oops. used to be the lead singer in The Reels. Yeah. He's a guy called Dave Mason, oh, who's yeah. from Dubbo. And he now lives in Sydney. And she said, if you can get the piano from Dave's place to Dubbo, you can have the piano. So I hired a truck. <laughs> I drove to Sydney. But there were 10 steps that we hadn't anticipated, so I ended up having to help them. Oh. One of the most painful and difficult ordeals of my life. But we got it into the truck. Uh, is, the, the end. is the piano still in tune? The piano was tuned this morning Aye, there yeah, by go. Dubbo's one piano tuner, Doug oh, Pryor. I think he's the God one for you, piano tuner in the Dubbo. market. Yes. And, yeah, so Damien's lessons start at the conservatorium <laughs> uh, on Wednesday. Oh, good. And I'm just really looking forward to reliving the horror of childhood piano lessons through Damien, hopefully he enjoys it more than I do. <laughs> I think he might be a bit more skilled than you were, given be. his general talent for singing, He's got dancing. Moves. He's fantastic. All of the reels hits were written on that piano. Hey, wow, so hopefully that's that awesome! Is big inspiration it's a beautiful for piano. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's a night. The band is Night. 
Oh, yeah. Which is an old English <laughs> brand of piano, which is no longer right. in uh, production. Oh, wow. Rarely. Yeah, they stopped making them because, according to Wikipedia, I googled it, uh, pianos became cheaper to make in the Far East. So they uh. ceased production. Oh, so it was actually manufactured in England or something? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's actually, fun. that's pretty huge. Mm. I I have just purchased a guitar. Another right? one? Yes, yes, I know. So I um, uh, I sold a camera, which was quite an expensive camera, to pay for this guitar, and it's arrived in Australia. I got the notification. It's a Fender, who's not a sponsor of the show, by the way, Stratocaster American Professional. Wow. So manufactured in... Is that good? So the machines that were used in the Fender factory in Corona, California, were used to make Corona, California. No relation. Really? That's it's the really name called, of the place. Are you, are your wipes ready for when it arrives? Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's been coughed on, no doubt. So yes, unfortunately, the unfortunately named Corona, California factory is where the Fender factory is. The machines that Leo Fender built and bought to manufacture Jimi Hendrix's guitar, George Harrison's, everyone, Jimmy Page are still making the same guitars that people buy off the shelves when they buy American-made Fender guitars. So that legacy will be entering the Min's household. They probably need a new one. No, but... but oh, God's sake. Manny, this is, like, this is my nest egg you're talking about. Thank you very much to the Wigs for delivering your time, and I know it's precious. We'll see you again in two weeks' time, the number one show in Australia for five days back in June. We'll be back. Stick around now for an exclusive chat with Associate Professor Wayne Morgan, chatting with Wigs Felicity Graham and Stephen Lawrence. I'm Associate Professor Wayne Morgan um, at the ANU College of Law. I have engaged in sexuality-based law reform for, gosh, I hate to admit it, 30 years now. One of my uh, first experiences leaving aside um, some HIV activism in the 1980s was actually... Um, being the lawyer for um, Mick Turnan and Rodney Croom when they took their case to the United Nations concerning Tasmania's sodomy laws. So the issue of sodomy laws and decriminalisation, um, as well as other gender identity and sexuality reform issues, um, have been yeah matters I've been concerned with and continue to be interested in and continue to teach. So, Wayne, can you uh, maybe tell us what are some of the significant aspects of this decision looking internationally? On one level, it does perhaps open a door um, and give more tools or weapons um, in the hands of those who might want to challenge um, uh, anti-gay laws or laws that discriminate um, against gay men, lesbians or those with a transgender status. Um, so on the one hand, it does that. On the other hand, I'm tempted to say, you know, perhaps it doesn't change much at all. Um, arguments that um, sexuality discrimination should be seen as an aspect of sex discrimination, which, of course, was the basis of the Supreme Court's decision in Bostock, um, are arguments that have been around now for decades, mm. um, going right back to the 1980s. Um, of course, if we look at the history of anti-discrimination law, um, certainly in Western countries or even constitutional protection, uh, again, uh, in Western developed countries, uh, it was often the case that, say, sex discrimination provisions predated sexuality discrimination provisions. And so right from the very beginning, um, lawyers, activists, you know, began to argue that issues of sexuality discrimination should be argued as a matter of sex discrimination. But having such an influential court as the US Supreme Court um, actually find that um, discrimination on the basis of sexuality um, or gender identity is an aspect of sex discrimination, um, obviously, as I said before, does add a powerful weapon into the hands of lawyers and activists who want to continue to pursue this type of litigation, uh, given the fact, of course, that there are still a number of countries that maintain sodomy laws and a number of other types of laws uh, that discriminate against uh, gay men, lesbians, um, or those with a diverse gender identity. So I thought it was interesting that, uh, that Neil Gorsuch was the author of the decision and he reaches the decision based on a very pure interpretation of the text and yes. application of logic. 
And I was yes. just interested whether you had any reflections on whether the fact that this argument has finally succeeded is really because of a simple question of text. Yeah, look, I'm tempted to give a very cynical response there, Stephen, and perhaps not a very loyally one. Um, <laughs> you know, when it comes to uh, these issues of discrimination and certainly when it comes to issues such as declaring sodomy laws unlawful, um, to be honest, I don't think it's ever a matter of the legal arguments because it is clear by now um, whether we're talking about international human rights law or indeed domestic law, it is clear now and has really been since the 1980s that there are extremely sound and, in fact, unanswerable arguments to demonstrate that these types of laws do contravene privacy rights, contravene equality rights, contravene, you know, a whole range of rights that are often found in constitutional bills of rights or indeed under international law of human rights. So, you know, the legal arguments are there, but they have always been there for the last 30 years. Mm. Um, I think that, yeah, in the US, it's very interesting. I think that, um, you know, we can trace the beginning of the change in the US to the uh, decision in Lawrence against Texas, mm. uh, which was when they finally overruled sodomy laws, um, uh, and that was, I forget the exact date, I think about 2003, um, that they finally overruled Bowers and Hardwick. Um, and, you know, from that time to the present, we can see a series of cases, Roma and Evans, um, through to the marriage litigation, you know, a few years ago, and now to this. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's got far more to do with the social changes, uh, you know, within the United States. I still think it's, yeah, very politically interesting that even though, you know, the current US Supreme Court is reasonably conservative, I think that just goes to show how mundane and commonplace these arguments have been, that we get justices who would often be considered to be, um, you know, middle of the road or even conservative leaning, um, who now agree with these arguments that are being put. Um, so, yeah, you know, um, I think that these things always have more to do with, yes, social change. Um, it's interesting, though, as you say, that this should be based upon such a, um, let me, what can I say, such a conservative and black letter approach to the issue of statutory interpretation. Mm. Um, and, of course, you know, that's exactly mm. what the majority in Bostock does. It says we don't have to consider you know, issues of legislative intent, we don't have to go behind the plain meaning of the words in the statute. Mm. Um, taking that sort of an approach to statutory interpretation, you know, you couldn't get a more traditionalist black letter approach uh, in terms of we will look at the meaning of the words on the page um, and because discrimination on the basis of sexuality inevitably must be at least partly discrimination on the basis of sex, Therefore, on the plain meanings of the words, um, the fact that sex discrimination is unlawful means that sexuality discrimination is unlawful. You know, that's sort of the process. So, yeah, I do think it's really interesting that these black letter um, traditional arguments should be used finally. Um, but, yeah, what really I think uh, uh, makes the right now um, rather than 20, 30 years ago um, is the social changes and that traditional um, of US Supreme Court decisions and, of course, the fact that it is impossible at the moment and, ha and has always uh, proved to be impossible to get reform to the legislation in the United States, so Title VII, yeah. uh, to add uh, sexuality or gender identity as protected grounds. Um, so, yeah, so the court in one sense, I think, decided the time was right and so they used the tools that were there. Um, and so they used the fact that sex discrimination was in Title VII when sexuality and gender identity was not. I thought it was interesting that at least two members of the minority professed to have a lot of concern for discrimination against gay people and to be quite supportive of the policy objective. But unfortunately, they just felt that they had to defer to the legislature on such matters. Yes. You know, I'm tempted to label it the some of my best friends are. Um, <laughs> you know, um, some of my best friends are gay. But, 
Um, yeah. Um, and again, that's, you know, that's very typical. And we have seen, you know, exactly those debates surface in, um, well, particularly sodomy decriminalisation cases at the constitutional level time and time and time again. Of course, those um, arguments were repeatedly made in India before the Indian Supreme Court, you know, finally declared uh, India's sodomy laws unconstitutional in 2018. Um, just uh, earlier this year um, in Singapore, the Singapore, um, uh, I can't remember which court it was in Singapore, um, uh, but yes, one of the superior courts in Singapore, you know, again refused to declare um, Singapore's uh, anti-gay laws unconstitutional. And one of the stated reasons of the court uh, was that this was not the correct province uh, uh, in terms of, you know, the court's jurisdiction. Wayne, you've obviously been involved in uh, gay rights litigation for many, many years, decades now. I'm interested in your perspective on where things are up to at the moment and what are the remaining legal battles still to be fought to achieve equality? Yeah, um, okay. So, yeah, sometimes I begin to feel really old um, <laughs> when I go back to 1980s because I literally do remember a time when, you know, and when I grew up and when I came out, uh, being gay was still illegal in the jurisdictions in which I lived. Um, and, yeah, uh, HIV was just starting to have a real impact. There was certainly no anti-discrimination protection at any level um, and of course there was no form of relationship recognition whatsoever so you know the amount of reform that has occurred in the last 30 years at least in western developed states um, is really extraordinary um, and yeah I think that you know we need to reflect on that um, yeah of course um, until recent times there has been much less reform in terms of gender identity and so I think that there is still work that needs to be done there, although, yeah, we've come a long way in the last few years. Um, the legislative changes uh, that have been made in a number of states and territories, you know, just in the last um, three years or so, have been extraordinary. Um, you know, for example, no longer requiring um, surgery, uh, which, of course, um, is not only incredibly expensive but is also, in one sense, a body mutilation. Um, you know, no so longer... requiring surgery in order to, to change your change. gender as a matter of official sort of bureaucracy. Exactly. Yep. Um, and that's now the case in a number of jurisdictions. So Tasmania did it last year. Um, ACT did it, you know, a few years before. Uh, Western Australia was also looking at the issue. So now, yeah, it is literally just a matter of um, signing a statutory declaration. There is often still some gatekeeping that is required. So there may be um, a letter required from, say, a psychiatrist or a psychologist. Um, but apart from that, um, it is now, you know, relatively easy uh, to have gender changed in terms of official documents both at the state and territory level and also at the Commonwealth level. So, you know, there's been a lot of reform um, in that area in recent years. Look, some of the areas where I think we still have a lot of work to do, um, you know, some areas of family law and the recognition of family rights, um, you know, I think remain problematic, uh, particularly uh, for gay men who wish to have families. So the whole issue of surrogacy is something that I would, you know, um, name there. Uh, now that we have relationship recognition and we have marriage uh, in Australia, um, of course, it is true that some, not all, um, you know, I myself am a gay man who does not want to have children, never did, never would want to, but, of course, we know that a lot of gay men would like to. Um, and, of course, uh, yeah, uh, there is no other way except for surrogacy. Um, and whilst uh, surrogacy remains largely illegal in this country, uh, it forces people into very problematic foreign surrogacy um, uh, contracts and, and relationships, which itself 
can amount to exploitation of the women involved. We've seen, you know, recent reforms in a number of Southeast Asian countries, Thailand, India, um, either to make it illegal for, for um, foreign-based surrogacy to take place. So, yeah, I really think Australia needs to do something about that. Perhaps more importantly, and even though we have coverage in anti-discrimination law, um, I really think that, you know, it is um, very, very difficult to pursue sexuality-based and gender identity-based discrimination claims in this country. This is partly because anti-discrimination law in this country itself is in a parlous state um, and has fallen behind the rest of the world. Um, but it's also because of the particular difficulties, you know, surrounding those grounds. So I really think we need to see reform there. Um, and we also need to see, um, I think, further reform, although it's a difficult one, in terms of issues of violence and hate speech. Um, and, of course, we know some of the difficulties, uh, you know, over the last few years, well, going back, I suppose, now, you know, over the past decade or so with the whole issue of hate speech versus free speech, etc. So, um, yeah. So are you surprised at how far we've come in terms of these matters? Like if you were sort of in 1985 or whatever when you were starting out to maybe think about these issues, if someone had said to you that by 2020 there'd be equality in terms of anti-discrimination law, in terms of marriage law, would you have been mm. surprised, do you think? Look, knowing the angry young, knowing the un, the angry young man I was in 1985, Stephen, I probably would have said 2020 is not soon enough. <laughs> a hell of a lot quicker. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, but you know, leaving that aside, and with hindsight, um, yeah, as I said before, I, I do think it's remarkable, you know, how far we've come. Now, whilst I say that, you know, I recognise that I speak from a relatively privileged position um, in terms of, you know, a white male academic at a university. Um, but, yeah, you know, I think that it is, you know, far more difficult uh, in terms of, uh, you know, if you are within certain communities, uh, if you have the sort of intersectional identities, you know, that cross race, um, gender, sexuality, disability, you know, whatever those multiple grounds might be. And that's, you know, one of the areas where I think anti-discrimination law needs to have, you know, a lot more reform, uh, you know, in terms of better coping with intersectional discrimination, which is often the reality of people's lives. Mm. So I saw Julia Gillard on Q&A on Monday night and she was yes. throwing a few tough questions, including some questions about her historic position on gay marriage. And she sort of defended her position with something that she said before, which is that, well, look, I grew up in um, a feminist school of thought that wasn't particularly enamoured with marriage, and that's really the origin of yeah. my opposition Bullshit. to it. Bullshit. Yeah, and the interviewer Bullshit. sort of called her out a bit and read out a quote that she'd given at the time saying, oh, well, look, I grew up in quite a traditional family and I've got, you know, quite a traditional view of marriage, I suppose, and she sort of struggled to answer it. But um, it got me thinking about... Um, about the overall impact of that uh, particular reform. And I was just curious whether it's something that you've thought about in terms of um, your historic position um, in terms yeah. of sort of queer theory and stuff like that where you've taught. Exactly. Um, yeah, constantly, Stephen. And it's still something, you know, I uh, debate with my classes at university. So, yeah, my... Um, traditional position on same-sex marriage is that, um, yeah, it is. it was not something that we should be fighting for. Um, and our goals when it came to relationships should have been, you know, far broader and far more inclusive. Um, you know, there is more than one way to achieve equality. And abolishing marriage would have achieved equality um, just as equally as, you know, allowing a particularly privileged group of, you know, particularly gay men but also lesbians into this nice little club um, which, yeah, you know, has a lot to uh, uh, be concerned about when we look at marriage historically. But even, I think, you know, currently, um, you know, I often have a debate with my classes about, well, you know, what is the image that sort of lies behind marriage and what are the relationship, 
you know, goals that still seem to be encapsulated in it. So we start to talk, of course, about monogamy, lifelong commitment, you know, a number of aspects which, um, in my opinion, are, you know, not only the social but also the anthropological and, you know, social evidence throws into a lot of doubt. You know, there's uh, a number of anthropological studies now that question whether, for a start, you know, humans are designed to be monogamous. And there's a lot of social evidence that supports that. And not to mention the way that our nice little nuclear family groups, you know, are so useful in the support of capitalism um, and as nice little units to, you know, transmit dominant ideology. So now I'm really sounding like an old-fashioned lefty. (laughs) Um, Yeah, you know, my goals when it came to relationships were always, you know, more akin with the old 1970s gay liberation goals. So, you know, it was the polymorphous perverse. Um, Yeah, let's break down these structures that put us in these nice little boxes. Um, And, yeah, let's recognise adult relationships that, for a start, have more than two people in them. Um, And, secondly, that may not last. Thanks for listening. Please like The Wigs on Facebook at The Wigs Podcast. Don't forget to rate and review on iTunes. Hey, it's Jim Minns here. For the final time, I just want to remind you all that you can also follow us on Twitter at Wigs Podcast. And it is there that you can send us your questions and we'll answer them on the next episode. This podcast was brought to you by Minimal Productions, produced by Jim Minns.